There's a message of compassion that's being preached by a number of people, a number of pulpits across our nation, uh, on the airwaves, uh, over the internet, that really are calling for a compassion that I believe is really a counterfeit compassion. It sounds very attractive to people because it sounds like uh, the message of the Bible so much to them and so many of the things are presented and couched with verses attached to them. And yet, uh, even as I mentioned this morning, uh, they are often presented, these calls to compassionate Christianity, compassionate church, often presented with the accusation that the main problem within the church today, the main impediment to achieving the kind of compassion God wants, is that the church is too focused on what it's against. It's too focused on uh, on emphasizing negative things rather than positive things. It needs to be defined more by what it's for rather than what it's against. Jesus did this, we're told. The early church did this. This is what made them, in the words of one of these preachers, irresistible to the world. Jesus had an ethic of love. The early church had an ethic of love that was defined as so positive, so positive in its expressions of grace, so positive in its affirmations, that people people were overwhelmed by an attraction to it. This was uh, this is presented as the explanation of the rapid growth of the early church. Of course, these modern voices of the love ethic within the church never explain why, if Jesus' love ethic was so irresistible, why so many people resisted him. More troublesome is that they attempt to set their definitions of love in, the, in, in terms of some sort of conflict between scriptures, as if somehow Jesus introduced an ethic of love that was opposed to the Old Testament, in opposition to the Old Testament law, because the law was too focused on prohibitions, too focused on restrictions, too focused on what you don't do. People therefore, could not focus on love because they were too focused on what to avoid, too focused on what activities to refrain from, all with the implication, often, that Jesus came to do away with all that, that Jesus, the essence of Jesus' love was to undo all of this attention on what you don't do, to to, uh, if you will, rewind this kind of focus or or to back away this kind of focus from these prohibitions. People present this ethic of love in such a way, therefore, that it is contrary to any kind of definitive standards. It is hindered by rules. It is obstructed by regulations. And it is dampened by almost anything that is negative. And so the way the church 
is supposed to become irresistible again is to get rid of all the focus on standards and rules and regulations and prohibitions and just talk about love. Just focus on grace without talking about all those things. Don't be defined by what you're against. Don't spend your time talking about what you're against because love cannot grow in that environment. Love cannot or love is not defined that way. The unfortunate thing in the midst of all that rhetoric is that biblical love cannot survive in the kind of environment that these preachers are espousing. That is, in fact, a formula for detracting from true biblical love. Because contrary to the platitudes of these modern-day love culture proponents, when the Bible defines love, it very often defines it in terms of what it's against. Because love is so important to the gospel because it's so important to the church because it's so important to who God is, Satan is in a constant effort to redefine love and to counterfeit love within the church. And so there are many false forms of love that are presented that are nothing more than a facade of the, of the real thing. And so tonight, I want us to turn our attention to a passage that would essentially make no sense within the modern schemes and the modern definitions of love within the love culture church. Because the kind of love that Paul describes for us in Ephesians chapter 5, the way he describes it, would sound so strange, so foreign to most modern congregations. In fact, ironically... This is the very thing that they condemn from these pulpits. Godly, biblical love, as Paul defines it, as he taught it to the early church, as they went on to embrace and were defined by, is actually what is rejected by these modern pulpits. In other words, they seemingly wouldn't recognize genuine love if it hit them in the face. And to see that, we look here at Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says in the opening verse, his essential primary command, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Now that love is spelled out for us in this passage with three essential definitions, just real basic. Love, Paul tells us, first of all, is defined by who God is. It's defined by who God is. This is what he gets at when he gives a command in verse 1 to imitate God. This is where the understanding of love begins. Love, the love that Paul has in mind in this passage, is unambiguously characteristic of God. There is no separation between a kind of love that we have and a kind of love that he has. This is love as God is defined by it. And we are therefore to imitate Him. It's fairly common for Paul to call for imitation. But typically he wants people to imitate someone 
Very often himself, he frequently tells people, imitate me. Brothers, he says in Philippians 3.12, join in imitating me. Philippians 4.9, you've learned the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you to be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or he tells the Thessalonians, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So he's frequently calling on imitation because Paul understood that this is one of the primary ways of teaching, one of the primary ways of discipleship, was, was to have some example to follow. And he understood in leadership that your leadership is, first and foremost, example. Paul will even sometimes encourage people to imitate others, imitate churches. He tells the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 2, the churches of Judea, you're to imitate them. But here, this is actually the only place, this is the only place where Paul simply tells people to imitate God. He probably understood that especially in that situation, that time as the New Testament was being written, that one of the best ways that people could understand God was to see his see him manifest the characteristics of God manifest in their leaders but but as he unfolds for them the gospel he can then point them to God as the essence of what they are to imitate not that you'll ever completely be like God he is of course perfect his attributes are always uh, distinguished from mankind in that in his infinity and in his perfection but but still theologians speak about the attributes of God in terms of those that can be imitated and those that cannot some which they say are incommunicable that is they cannot be communicated to us they're not things that we could ever imitate such as omnipresence omniscience but then there are things which are they would say communicable They can be communicated to us. They are things that we can imitate. Or some would categorize them maybe as moral or non-moral. We can't necessarily imitate the non-moral, but the moral we are always to imitate. And among those, the chief among those, along with things like goodness and mercy and righteousness, is of course love. We're to be like God. Paul's already kind of laid this foundation back in chapter 4, verse 24. He talks about the new birth, that we are born again, and when that happens, we are created, he says, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's sort of referring back to the whole purpose for which we were created. We were made, remember Genesis 1 says, in the likeness of God. God created us like Him. Not that He has a body and we're supposed to look like God, but we're created in in the image of everything that God is about. And so this likeness of God is somewhat restored in the new creation and in the gospel. We are to be imitators, we're to be replicas of Him on the earth. And so this is the great 
purpose of man and the great work of the gospel that we are made new creature, new, new, new creations like God in true righteousness and holiness. And we are consist, consistently and continually being conformed to the image of his son. And to that extent, we are to reflect him. To that extent, the gospel is to be effective in our lives. But especially, not just generally, for all mankind, they are created in the image of God, especially for us, who Paul says here in 5.1, there is the second half of verse 1, we are the beloved children of God, we have received God's special favor, God's special love, and so we are to be eager, eager to reflect back all of that wondrous grace that we've received to be beloved by God. And it's out of this that he issues really his ultimate command in verse 2 then to walk in love. Among all the communicable attributes that Paul could list, this one was supreme. Because God is love, Scripture says. It's characteristic of God. It's fundamental to His nature. It is exalted over and over again throughout Scripture. The love that Paul has in mind, this supreme sort of characteristic that he highlights again and again in Scripture, is, is defined by God. And the love that Paul has in mind when he calls us to love is unambiguously the love of God. The love that is the essence of God. Paul's already sort of called the church to this standard over and over again. Back in chapter 4 again, verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every uh, joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so as to build itself up in love. He's already sort of said this ought to define the church. This loving relationship ought to define the church. And then he comes down at the end of the chapter in verse 25. And he begins to talk about all the things, therefore, that we are to put off because of the new creation that's within us. And he gets very specific in verse 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. See all this tenderheartedness and forgiveness and kindness and all of that, all of it flows out of God and what He's done for us. Which sort of takes us to the second definition that Paul has in this passage. Not only is it defined by God, but as he goes on to say in verse 2, it's defined by what Christ has done. Imitate God, walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so as he calls us to imitate God, and he commands us to love, he immediately turns his, his attention 
from the imitation of God to the way it was most supremely manifest in the history of the world, which is the sacrifice of Christ, the most concrete demonstration of love in the history of the world was God's sending of His own perfect, sinless, spotless Son into the world to be the Savior for sinners. It is the supreme example that was ever given. This is affirmed over and over again in Scripture, 1 John 4, 9. In this is the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John says it. This this is the supreme example of love. This is the best definition, the best manifestation, the best representation that God sent His Son, not as a response to our love, not that we first loved Him, but that He loved us. It's not that God looked at us and we had some sort of longing and yearning for Him in a way that made uh, our sins less uh, appalling to Him or somehow made us more appealing to Him. Now His love is much, much deeper, more profound, more counterintuitive than all that. All that to say, it looks nothing like the love of the world. A love that merely responds to what is agreeable, affirming, attractive, and pleasant. Whatever is desirable, whatever you want to respond to with affection, people respond and they call that love. But of course, once a person becomes irritating, or once a person no longer fulfills a need or desire in your life, you cease to show love. You find someone else to shower it upon. That that is the biblical, excuse me, that is the worldly definition of love. John's saying that's not love. That's not love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Jesus said, greater love has no man, but that He lay down His life. He laid down His life for His friends. He was talking about His disciples. In the broader biblical context, though, we understood or we understand that none of us are friends of God until Christ calls us, until He makes us His own. Romans 5, 7, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, even when we were hostile towards him, Christ died. So this is love. This is love. John, by the way, in 1 John, after sort of spelling all that out, says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I mean, it's the only reasonable conclusion. If this is what God demonstrated, if this is what you believe about God, this is the way you ought to live for others. If this is the example, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you do that? 
And so this is what Paul is saying to us here in Ephesians. Walk in love as Christ loved him, loved us and gave himself up for us. This is repeatedly, by the way, what Paul points to as the definition of love. Even here later on in chapter 5, he talks to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. He says in Galatians, I, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is always the emphasis of biblical love. The sacrifice, irrespective of the of the worthiness of the object. The sacrifice irrespective of the, wor- of the worthiness of the object. This is what defines love. Which Paul says, by the way, here in Ephesians, was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant aroma to God. Which is a very interesting phrase because, you know, it leads me to ask the question, does God smell? Really? I mean, does God have a nose? Does He endure bad smells along with good smells? What does all that mean? It's a phrase that's picked up from the Old Testament because when the priest would burn the incense on the offering, we are told that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It doesn't mean that God was at that moment sort of literally stooping over sniffing the smells of the rising smoke. This is all what we call anthropomorphism, assigning to God the characteristics of of humanity in order to make a statement about God, communicate something about Him. And what it's basically saying is that these offerings that were offered on the altar in the Old Testament were pleasing to Him. And this is the same way that Paul is using it here. He's basically saying that this fragrant, fragrant aroma, this kind of love, this kind of sacrifice was pleasing to God. This is what is, brings delight to Him. Fragrant offering and sacrifice. This is the love that God desires from us. A sacrificial laying down of yourself irrespective of the worthiness of the object. You know, we sometimes are willing, as Romans says, to make a sacrifice. We're sometimes willing, maybe if we feel like the person is a good person, a good man, we might lay down our life for them. Or even for baser motives. You realize, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that some people in in the, in the name, maybe, of love, a pseudo-love, make all kinds of sacrifices, give their body to be burned, do all these magnanimous deeds, and yet it's not really love. Because it, it's really all about you. It's really all about your praise. It's really all about your recognition. It doesn't qualify. By biblical terms. The love that he's calling us to is the same 
love that was demonstrated by our Lord in giving up himself, which, by the way, wasn't only on the cross. It was something that he taught his disciples over and over and over again at the very height of his trial. They demonstrated the height of insensitivity and pride and selfishness. You remember he was about to be betrayed and about to be crucified. And he was taking his disciples into the upper room to give the final lessons that he would give them in this life. And it was at that point when he was under so much anguish and they were expressing so much insensitivity bickering about which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom, unaware and unconcerned about what he personally was going through. At that very moment, he picked up a basin and a towel, began to wash their feet. It was a task that should have been done by one of them, really, as the follower and as the disciple. In fact, it was usually left to a slave to do, which is probably why they refused to do it. Because in their sense, it was beneath them. It wasn't beneath Christ. And yet, despite all of their callous lack of concern for all that he was facing, even all he was trying to teach them, and all they had refused to hear, with a humble forgiving, unconditional, and self-sacrificial heart, he began to serve them. And John 13 records this, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. And later on, he says it again. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. See, it wasn't just the cross. It wasn't just some huge, magnanimous moment that he showed his love. He was saying it's in all the mundane little things of life every day. All the little decisions that you make when you encounter people who frustrate you or, or try you or are insensitive to you. That's where you express this love. This is where you lay down your life. Now up to this point, most people would sort of be tracking with what Paul says here because everyone wants to claim that the love they're talking about is God's love. And um, certainly they would want to promote a love that is demonstrated on the cross. Many of their songs would sing about this love in light of the cross. But it's really the rest of what Paul has to say that is irreconcilable to them. Because he goes on in verse 3 to then tell us that love is defined by what it's not. Now, far from those people who would want to tell us that the church is too defined by what it's against and too defined by all these prohibitions and all these warnings and all these condemnations, 
Paul, ironically, in this grand picture of love, biblical, pure, Christ-like love, godly love, unambiguously pointing to, to, to the love which is defined by God, feels compelled to further define this love with a whole list of things that love is not. He says, in contrast to what he just told them about love, he begins to list all of what we might call the false forms of love, the distorted forms of love. When he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. I mean, this, this would be incomprehensible to most people who are following along in the modern love culture of the churches because, because this flies in the face of everything they've heard about love. Love doesn't draw attention to all of these things. I mean, this is the definition of unloving to tell people, to warn people to avoid sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and, and filthy talk. I mean, that's, that's so gray. Getting into people's personal conversations. But Paul understood... Paul understood that you cannot comprehend the love of God without comprehending it by way of contrast. You can't comprehend the depth of God's love without first of all understanding the kind of of darkness that we were in. You can't define the love of God without talking about the darkness and the ugliness of sin. And you can't contrast the love of God without contrasting it to the many, many false notions of love that are out there. And so Paul begins to name all of these things. Words like porneia, akatharsia, which really would cover all kinds of sexual sin, not just explicit adulterous and fornicating sins, but even even, um, sins that were maybe in the realm of what we would call flirtatious, but they were impure. And then he even talks about covetousness. Some people think he might be talking about coveting your neighbor's wife as the Decalogue talks about in the Old Testament. I don't think so because... He eventually goes down in verse 5 to um, equate covetousness with idolatry, just as he does in Colossians, not in a sexual sense in Colossians, but just simply greed, desire for what your neighbor has. Paul cannot, cannot talk about love without contrasting it with all of these distortions. He can't teach about love without setting it over against 
all of the aberrations. He can't call people to love without also warning them against the destructive forces of these things. He's saying that these sins should be so universally absent from your life, even from the body of believers, that there should be no occasion to associate the church with them. That's what he means when he says they must not even be named among you. He's not saying specifically you, although that certainly would be the case. It shouldn't even be named regarding you individually, but it certainly shouldn't be named among you as a church. It shouldn't be anything that people would equate with the body of Christ. And so Paul would never sort of condone the modern love ethic, which eschews the 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 role and the duty of shepherds to call out warnings to people and even to practice church discipline in excommunicating people who don't abide by biblical uh, uh, mandates. These things shouldn't be associated with the church. They shouldn't be associated with Christians. And Paul can't talk about love without warning us of that. Not only that, he says, there shouldn't even be filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. The word filthiness simply is a word that means bringing things or those things, I should say, that bring shame. The kind of talk that would embarrass someone when you bring it up pretty clear in this context he's talking about the kind of speech that would defile someone's conscience result in embarrassment lead to disgrace the parallel passage over in colossians uses the term obscene talk you if you name the name of christ shouldn't be engaging in obscene talk it has as he says no place among Christians. This would have been really difficult for the Ephesians because they lived in a city that was known for its obscenity. It was known for the temple of Artemis, the goddess of fertility, and people would regularly draw attention to this landmark, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They would regularly want to engage in conversation about the goddess of fertility. It would have been an incredible environment for them to resist the kind of talk that is inappropriate, the kind of talk that is filthy, the kind of talk that even is full of innuendos. Paul's message is that no matter how the culture around you might engage in it. This kind of conduct has no place among Christians. Coarse jesting, crude talking, crude joking. Even if it's in the name of being witty and funny. And this kind of talk, this word, by the way, is um, 
this word for crude talking, is used by Aristotle in association with the kind of conversation and joking normally known among young people. All of the young boys, all of the maybe young girls, this is the way they talked. It wasn't always necessarily negative in a Greek's mind, but it certainly is in Paul's mind. He says it has no place. He has, by the way, this foolish talk, morologia, from which we hear the word moron. It has to do with, with uh, ignorant controversies, the sort of bravado of uh, people who speak more than they know just in order to be the center of attention and sometimes full of vulgar and obscene references as well. Paul, by the way, is not against joking. He's not saying that you should be a dull and boring person if you're a Christian. He's not against laughter. He's not against joy. The Scripture teaches us that joyful heart is good medicine. The Bible doesn't condemn laughter. The propensity to laugh at yourself is in fact one of the great signs of humility, isn't it? But this is the wrong kind of joking. The wrong kind of obscene and crude and vulgar joking. I think it goes without saying then, and if this is what Paul is uh, sort of laying out as a prohibition among churches, and especially in the context of what is loving, it would go without saying that this kind of stuff doesn't belong in the church and certainly doesn't belong in the pulpit. And yet, unfortunately, some of these very churches that have espoused the love culture are some of the very same churches that have some of the most crude and vulgar pulpits that the church has probably ever known. Their mailers, their flyers are often filled with promotional material that is obscene, that is suggestive, that is embarrassing, vulgar. We're told that this is the way to connect with the world, that we have to show them that we're real people, that we're authentic, that we're genuine, that we're just like them, messed up, just like they're messed up. Well, it is a way to connect with the world, but not for good. You can connect with them, but not in a way that God's going to use. In fact, all of that just sort of undermines what God intended to be the distinction of the church, the distinction of its love. And then Paul gives this warning in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. How unloving! I mean, how uncompassionate of Paul to tell people that they are not going to heaven. To actually stand there and tell them that if they're engaged in sexual immorality, or if they are covetous, or if they are impure, that they're not going to heaven. 
I mean, doesn't, didn't Paul get the memo that in order for him to be irresistible to the world and in order for him to lead this church to, how, to be irresistible to the world, he's got to drop all that language. He's got to somehow get, get, get rid of all the things that he's against and stop telling people that they're condemned. Not in the love that Paul understands. Not in the love that he says is according to God. And not in the love that he says is defined by Christ. Because you will never understand the depth of Christ's sacrificial love. If you're never told the depth of your darkness, your depravity, and your sin. This is one of the very reasons why, ironically, that within these churches who are preaching love but no condemnation, you witness the slow erosion of any kind of genuine love. Because it's never set in contrast. Because it never comes with these kind of deep warnings. Let no one deceive you. Don't let anyone tell you that you can be a Christian and keep doing these things. Don't, ever, don't, don't let anyone tell you that you're okay to come to our church if you're sexually immoral or if you're impure or if you're covetous. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let them tell you you're going to be all right. Don't let them tell you you can live like this and God will be okay with you. Don't let that happen because that would not be loving. That would be deceptive. That would not be loving. That would be counterfeit compassion. Not the real thing. Empty, meaningless, useless. Real love tells you this. That because of all these things, because of uncleanness and filthiness and foolish talk and coarse jesting, filthy mouth. Real love tells you because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So be loving. Be imitators of God. Demonstrate to these kinds of people. These kinds of sexually immoral and impure people demonstrate to them the unconditional sacrifice of laying down your life. But do it with the message of genuine compassion. The message that comes with a warning. The message that says to them, the love I'm showing you, I learned from Christ. Because I used to be just like you. Because I used to be a sinner, depraved, rebellious, dark, and filthy. And the love I'm showing you now, I learned because I saw Christ love me in that condition. Counterfeit compassion saves nobody. And it builds up no churches. It only furthers the 
counterfeit work of the deceiver. Well, let's um, stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for this little reminder tonight to, to bolster our confidence and to remind us of where genuine love comes from and how it is built among us. It comes with these contrasts. It comes with these warnings. It comes with these reminders of all the things that are filthy and hateful and condemning. Because it's in light of that that we see your love. We know that, Lord. We understand it from Scripture. We have been reminded of that tonight. I pray, Father, then that you would make us the most genuinely compassionate and loving church that we can be as we plunge ourselves deeper and deeper into the realities of the gospel and the realities of salvation from all of this darkness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.